Blog Talk Radio. of the Pirate Monk Podcast, coming to you once again live from the stratosphere, uh, not from high above the Mellow Mushroom in downtown Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, I'm I'm in my bedroom in Franklin, Tennessee. I'm your host, Nate Larkin, and uh, Mondo's with what, us. Mondo, what, where hey, are what, you, brother? What, what, oh, no, what are you wearing in your bedroom? That's what I need to know first. <laughs> <laughs> are you, you in your pajamas? Um, I, I don't. Let's just say yeah. that. I'm in my pajamas. That sounds good. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping we could have, like, skated over that, but... <laughs> you, when do, you, when you, do I ever gloss over anything, Mondo? I know, I know. <laughs> and, uh, are you, Mondo, are, are, you, are you... Are you high atop the Mellow Mushroom? Yeah, I am, actually. Um, I am high atop the Mellow Mushroom. It is a wreck up here still. Um... But uh, things are coming together, man. So, but I'm here this nice uh, gloomy day in Franklin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, everything's good over here, man. Just holding it down. Okay, beautiful. Well, Allie and I have already taken a stroll down to Starbucks and said hi to some friends and strolled back. It's been a wonderful morning, nice, cool, overcast morning here in Franklin. The fall is very much in the air. Uh, bring us up to speed on San Luis, will you, Aaron? I got to know what Mondo was thinking when he heard you stroll to Starbucks. You were thinking he was still in his pajamas, right? Were you visualizing that? Yeah, I, 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 was, I, was, I, was. I yeah. knew you were. <laughs> That's just I got a, weird. A, a nice policeman gave us a ride home. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> nice. And they usually don't bust out that breathalyzer so early in the morning. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it is lovely here in San Luis Obispo, going through a, a lot of exciting adventures right now. And uh, I, am, I am excited because purely on accident, I have uh, acquired, though not received, a gypsy jazz guitar, a Django Reinhardt guitar. Okay. Mondo, and, help me understand the significance of this. They're very hard to find, number one. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, and that's, it's, a, it's a unique piece. So, yeah, you have to kind of be a, a techie musician head to understand. Okay. <laughs> and and gypsy, gypsy jazz, Django was from France, and that's like swing music played on a guitar. Really right. cool. So Scott Dente and I have discussed... Uh, getting on the road, learning gypsy jazz. I've been trying to work on it, but it's hard to find like good resources to learn this if you don't have a teacher. But we're going to mm-hmm. start smoking French cigarettes and looking down on people and playing gypsy <laughs> jazz. That's, that is the future of my life. Well, let me see. You pretty much are. You, you've got all those requisite skills uh, in your mailbag already, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I you just need to get French I... cigarettes. Is that the difference? Well, I, I don't understand yeah. what's going to yeah, I'm I'm not a smoker, so I see inhaling as being a problem. Okay. Um, but I'm going to get a really sexy voice out of it, so that's going to be awesome. <laughs> Looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Hey, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, we got no Newton today. Oh, we don't. Okay. I, uh, I assume he is climbing a wall or a mountain. Okay. Hey guys, this is Jay. I've just been exchanging texts with Newton. He's uh, he's going to jump in as soon as his manager shows up at his at his uh, climbing gym. So oh, I I'm out. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, I'm Super. excited about our guest today, uh, coming in all the way from Missouri, where the weather is even colder than there in Franklin, Tennessee. Huh? But before yeah. we get to that, uh, do you, do you want to get into the mailbag? 
I would love to get into the mailbag. Why don't you uh, – I'm going to run to the mailbag right now. If you just give us uh, a few seconds of transitional music, I will retrieve the mail. We'll be right back with some mail here on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Well, I'm up and I'm down and I'm all around, but I'm okay if you ask me, because we don't really take the time to care like we could. I could trip, I could fall, you won't know it all, because your busyness is blinded. We don't really have the time to love like we should, and it always goes back down to the way. are back. We gave you a few seconds. What do we have in the mailbag? Wow, we just got some nice notes from listeners. Here's one that comes to us from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It says, uh, Nate, Aaron, Mondo, Newton, I want to thank you all for the wonderful service you're doing for men around the world. I'm a recovering addict myself. My addictions to pornography and masturbation have slowly taken their toll on me spiritually and mentally. I'm in a recovery group now, and I'm finally starting to see my addiction for what it is, a symptom. It's a symptom of a less-than-love-filled childhood, and of pride, and of low self-esteem, and of poor male relationships, and a lack of connection to the living God, as hard as it is, uh, as hard as he is for me to understand. I've learned for myself that God designed us to be in relationship in order that we might find him there. Turns out there really is an answer to why are we here. I'm catching up with your show on the podcast, and thank you, thank you for you all every time your shows come up in rotation. I've told dozens of men about your efforts to exemplify real, honest, vulnerable male relationships. Thanks again. Nice note. Thank you, Tim. All right. Uh got another nice note here from a friend. He says, uh, I'm going to jump in the middle of his uh, letter. I want to share with you a way the show is helping me. Lately, I felt the need to let my heart warm up to what it has always wanted and needed from my dad. He was an abusive, detached bully of a man, especially in my youngest years as a boy. And so I shut myself down when it came to what I really wanted from a father. For some reason, I've needed to open my heart up to what I wanted and needed. Having two boys, five and eight, who love being wrestled and their daddy's affection, which I enjoy giving, have maybe shown me the need to go in that direction. More so, I think it's been God-leading. Lately, as I've heard you talking on the program, honestly, as, uh, and all as you do, I find myself thinking, now there's a picture of a man who sounds fatherly, uh, being what I always wanted my dad to be, honest and owning his shit, kind and engaging. I realize some of that may seem weird, so please know that I'm not calling you my dad. I think this is simply a way that God is showing a place in my heart. Uh, and what it's like to see the above model. My heart's receiving something there, and it's good. So I just wanted to share that and honor and affirm what you guys offer. If you choose to share any of this uh, uh, on the show, maybe call me Chaz, since that's my middle name. Uh, the things I shared about my – okay. Anyway, thank you so much, Chaz. Thank you for the note. Um, you know, you know, there's, I think there's something in that that's really important for, yeah. for guys to hear. There is nothing. Uh, let me see if that's a true statement. Maybe. It's close. One of my top things that disappoints and angers me most in the world are older Christian men who suck. <laughs> because there are so many people 
that have had broken relationships with their dads, and then yeah. they put on God so many of those attributes that, that it's hard to trust God, that he's good, yeah. that he loves them, that there's mercy and grace when they fail, all that stuff. Yeah. And it's the responsibility of older men in the church to help other men find out what that fatherly picture is. And I can still remember as a child, a man in the church I grew up in, uh, named Julius Voget. And he was one of the softest, grace-filled guys I had ever met. He yeah. was what an older man in the church is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it's something to look forward to for each of us as we get older. Yeah, uh, It's an honor and a privilege to give that to other people. And uh, I just love that uh, jazz, Gypsy Jazz, mm-hmm. has uh, has allowed his heart to be touched by that because God gives us relationships to help us on that journey towards understanding his yeah. gospel love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we uh, we often say in the Samson Society that, in a way, we're kind of refathering each other. Um, I do think it's you know it's essential not to put uh, any one person too much in that role that belongs only to God. Jesus cautioned us that way: "Call no man father. You have a father, and you are all brothers." Remember that: "Call no man teacher. You have a teacher." Uh, but at the same time, I think that the father's love is mediated to us through brothers and the role of the older brother is crucial. Um, One of the great surprises to me in in my own life is that I have um, fallen into that role so soon. You know, it seems like only yesterday that I walked around feeling 15 all the time and I still feel 15 much of the time. I'll tell you when it really struck me just a a week or so ago, I was, uh, I'm filling in for a therapist. Uh, I'm not a therapist, but I, you know, I can pinch, pinch it, kind of like a substitute teacher, right? Uh, in, a, in, in a group session, you know, the guy, you know, the teacher does not teach, but you know, they keep that uh, anyway. So it was an honor to do it. So I'm in a, I'm in a room with these guys who meet every week with a therapist, and they know each other. And there's about ten, twelve guys in the room, and they are, uh, and I'm looking around, and these are. Uh, established, successful guys. Some of them really have some miles on them. One of them's been married 30 years. And and we go around, we do introductions, and slowly it dawns on me that I am the oldest guy in the room. Like, when did that happen? Uh, and uh, And then, you know, finding that simply because of that stage of life and uh, where I am right now, there is kind of a uh, a gravitas that's given to me, an authority that comes my way that I can either accept or refuse. Um, and my words carry more weight, with some folks at least, than I imagine. And it, uh, I felt um, a sense of responsibility in that room that came with suddenly the realization that, holy smokes, I'm the oldest guy here. I've I've got a personal yeah. question for you, Nate. Yeah. It it comes with a, a gospel belief I have. Here's the belief. It's never too late to stop sucking. Yeah. That's, that's I think that's in the Bible somewhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, in, it's in hesitations. Um, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I, when I listen to... Jazz say that, and I know he's talking about you because you have the fatherly voice, uh, yeah. whereas you know Mondo and I just sound like uh, you know the uncles that drink too much at family reunions. But <laughs> part, part of your story is, wow, I spent all these years not being the kind of father to my yeah. kids that was honest and owning yeah. my stuff, right? And then you got to have that rebirth in your relationship with your children. And yeah. then it expanded exponentially mm-hmm. and you get a letter like this. What does that do yeah. for your heart in the redemptive yeah. process of God oh, putting yeah. your life back together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I mean, even as you describe, you put words to it beautifully, Aaron. Thank you. And as you did, I felt this kind of flush of emotion, this gratitude. Um, good golly, I'm on the urge of tears. It's um, that somebody who has failed so often and so miserably as both husband and father. Uh, to be seen by my wife as a worthwhile husband, to seen, be, be seen respected by my kids as a father, and to have that place in their lives and in the lives of others. I mean, it is so undeserved. It's so beautiful. And it, it really is, isn't it? It's a, it's a beautiful picture of um, God's redemptive work. I'm so grateful for it. Hey, let me ask the youngest guy in the podcast, Newton. Um, yes. How do you feel when you, uh, you're in a Samson group? Now, you're not the youngest guy in our Samson group. We got, we got some, uh, some really young guys. But right. There are, I think there I are, kind of in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but there's a bunch of guys in the room who've, who've got some uh, decades on you. Our, our oldest right. member is 87, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, how do you, how do you how do you do you yeah how do you relate kind of in the brother paradigm or the father sure. son paradigm and the other guys in the group? Yeah, for me, and I, I grew up, and luckily, luck may not be the right word. Thankfully, um, my my relationship with my dad is something that God has been working on and and has redeemed over the last, I guess, ten years. Um, but mm-hmm. I, as I grew up, my relationship with my dad was, I don't know what he would say about it, but I would say it sucked. I thought it was kind mm-hmm. of lousy. Um, and and so in Samson, that refathering concept, and I forget who it was that talked about that a long time ago on the podcast, but that was something I really latched onto. And I think in, in our group at least, um, because I do kind of sit in the middle a little bit, I I get to play – I get to fill the role of son, um, you know, learning from older guys and being mentored by by some of the older guys. But I also get to play the role of older brother uh, or mentor a little bit. Um, And that really, it has something to do with age, but it also has to do with experience. And there are younger guys in our group that have a little more life experience than I do. And, And so I get to learn from them. And there are older guys who maybe haven't done things that I've done. And, and I get to maybe impart some of that experience to them. Um, so I, I think it works both ways. Um, but I've, in our groups, as I've seen guys that have kids or that have done things that I haven't done, as I hear them talk about their life, it gives me perspective on my own. Um, mm. whether they Whether they know that they are acting in that father role or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about, um, about our group in particular, but I think about Samson society as a whole. Yeah. Uh, is yeah, that, yeah. that idea of refathering. Yeah. 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 Well, Nate, I think this is an incredible transition for us to move towards our guest, Serena Woods, author of yeah. Race is the Sinners because so much of her story is about reclaiming the power of grace for restoration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I don't know, should we take a little break and get right into this with her? Because I want to know what she has to say about all this. Let's do it. That sounds great. We'll be right back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast.
And we're back on the Pirate Monk Podcast, back with a very special guest, Serena Woods, uh, whose autobiographical account of her experience of grace minces no words. The book is Grace for Sinners. It's a gritty reflection of what moral failure looks like within the glass doors of Christianity. Her transparency about her sin in the aftermath would have been enough to challenge most people, but she doesn't stop there. She goes on to challenge the church's response to Christians who sin with an in-depth study of the Bible. Uh, out of the con- uh, Scripture taken out of context is used to condemn the sinner, but Serena finds that in-context grace saturates the gospel. Uh, so she she uh, presents a defense of the salvation power of Jesus in grace is for sinners. Uh, her muses are theology, psychology, and life. She's drawn to the spiritually broken, continually pointing them to the inescapable grace and love of God. Her writing is used as a counseling resource for Christian psychologists and counselors. She's a regular contributor uh, to the Society for Christian Psychologists newsletter and many other grace-based publications. Serena, welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Oh. Well, um, I'd love... uh, Aaron, why don't you take the lead on this uh, interview, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm going to sit back and enjoy this story. (laughs) Yeah, well, I want to hear the story. Uh, that I that I heard in part, but I'm sure every time you tell it, there are different parts that come out. So, give us a little of the story that that brought about that moment when you decided to put it down in a book. Uh, I um, grew up. Uh, I had a rough childhood, and then uh, I became a Christian as an adult. And um, and then after that, I just sinned big time. And um, trying to find my way back, I found so much, um, well, like you said earlier, just in-context grace that I don't think is being taught um, Mm -hmm. adequately enough to save people from just giving up on themselves or feeling like God has given up on them. I mean, everyone has at least heard of some Christian doing something stupid and then disappearing into obscurity. Moral failures um, in scandals happen all the time, and I don't think that the church is equipped uh, to, you know, to handle them. They end up feeling hurt and confused, and the failure mm-hmm. gets batted around with, uh, with ill-equipped hands. So the mess gets out of hand, examples are set, and the one who set off the explosion gets isolated uh, while damage control is, you know, being taken taking place. But what nobody is considering is that the person who set off the explosion could be the one most hurt by it. Mm. And this is especially, it's especially the case if that person is a Christian. Because moral failure on the part of the one who failed, uh, it penetrates to the spiritual level and attacks them in the unseen places. So I think it's it's easier to dehumanize people um, who mess up because it makes it easier to tend to the ones that they hurt. It's... um, it's treated as a conflict of interest to show concern for the one who sinned. Uh, their, their shame is actually, it's actually used as a bomb um, over the wounds of the ones who hurt. Shame is used as a bomb. It, it's a human response to, you know, to demonize the sinner that way. I mean, the problem is, is that it's, it's cheap. It requires withholding forgiveness and restoration to make it work. And the sinner has no. to stay underfoot. Right, mm-hmm. and what I what I love about your story and the reason that it's coming from your voice is that you uh, so often this kind of conversation comes from people uh, from the outside who who haven't set off the bomb, and you're saying mm-hmm. no, this was my story as this person, and give give a little before we get more into what you just talked about because I, I want people to have this context that you. I feel like you had a story of being the victim that you could have used uh, to just perpetuate all kinds of brokenness in your life because of the pain you went through as a child. 
But if you talk about this huge shift when after you were a Christian and you felt like you, you should have known better and you knew Jesus and you knew God loved you, and then you messed up, what a difference of pain that was. Talk a little bit, a bit about that difference because I, I think that's important. Yeah, um, I as I hate the word victim. I I for more reasons. I mean, just out of uh, I just feel like God is sovereign. So with a sovereign God, you know, there are no victims. But I mean, for the for the sake of just normal conversation. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, a lot of things happened to me that were not my choice. I mean, my mom was 15 when she had me. She was a prostitute. Um, I just suffered, um, you know, I'm just one of those stories that you hear and you can't believe that that, somebody survived that. So it's, uh, but the thing that kind of held me together through all of that is just this, uh, this belief that I was better than that and that one day I will have a better life, and especially when I'm in control of it, and I, I can create a normal life. I don't have to be um, the victim anymore. So whenever that time came around, and I've been living on my own since I was 17, I became a Christian at 19. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I just felt like I had overcome so much, and that gave me a lot of security and confidence, and, and um, I felt righteous, you know, all of that stuff. So whenever I um, I was not the victim, I was going through hell in my life, and it was my own fault. That is, that kind of pain was uh, more intense than the pain of a victim because the pain of a victim, a victim can always feel like this isn't me. It's not my fault. The pain of a sinner, that I did that. That is my fault, mm-hmm. and you have to own that. You have to. So that was when you talk about the difference between the types of pain. There's yeah. nobody to blame but yourself. Yeah. Now, how how much because of your strength? I mean, I, I'm hearing the words you're using. You were strong because of the hard experiences you had up to that point when you came to Christ, and you said, and I found out I had control over those feelings, and I could work it out, and, and another interview you said you just buried all that other stuff in some dark basement of your heart, and so much of that is the self-effort gospel-less living, where it's not God giving us the hope, it's us kind of creating a false hope. So what was the difference when you started taking control and then found out you weren't quite as in control as you thought you were, and then came to a deep gospel grace understanding. What were the differences between those early Christian years and what you discovered after you found out you weren't as powerful as you thought you were? That is an awesome question, because as a new Christian, when you're coming from a life like that, everybody Mm -hmm. tells you and you believe you are clean. It's a clean slate. None of that stuff happened. It's not part of you anymore. You can start from here and have a better life. And I grabbed onto that like my life depended on it. That was it. And then whenever I sinned, uh, it revealed to me (laughs) that all the stuff that I thought that I was healed from, all of the stuff that I had buried, all of that had caused a kind of damage inside of me that the sin was actually a symptom of. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it revealed brokenness deep inside of me that I didn't know was there. So all of that strength that I thought I had, all of that righteousness, all of that, I'm in control now, uh, it was um, fake. It wasn't real. It wasn't deep, yeah. obviously. So yes. the yeah. So you were the you were the good church girl, um, the earnest new convert. You loved Jesus. You were all excited about this new life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Um, did you during that period of your life? Um, did what was your attitude toward people who couldn't get it together or keep it together? Especially if I can be so bold in uh, matters of uh, the heart and sex and that kind of stuff? Um, I had absolutely zero tolerance for people who weren't as strong as I was. I had Mm -hmm. every reason in the world to be weak and to be, like, morally weak. 
Um, Like, weakened mind, all of it. I had every reason, and I overcame it. This is all, like, not (laughs) – this isn't my thought process right now. This is my thought process (laughs) back then. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I had zero tolerance for it. I thought it was – like, I mean, uh, if I can do it, anybody can do it. So if you can't do it, something is (laughs) wrong with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so, and that so you found yourself. Go ahead, go ahead, Aaron. Well, I I was just curious. So, what shifted after you became that person? What did you have um, to hold on to? Help. Um, okay, help me understand that question. How did your view of your role and God's role? Because before it was kind of like your role was to keep this all. Uh, in control, and God's role was just, uh, you know, out there. He loves me, but I need to keep this together. Yeah. After right. you found out, oh wow, I am one of those people. We are all one of those people. Yeah. How did that change what you felt like God's role in this process was? Since He didn't seem to have too big of a role before, because it was all up to you. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of like, uh, thanks, I got this now. Thanks for the new life. I can handle yeah. it totally. Um, and then after my my big failure, I uh, I obviously um, am not trustworthy. I am not capable of keeping myself uh, pure. And you know, before I was terrified of failure. I made huge decisions in my life just to um, you know like people can put chains on themselves. So I made huge Mm -hmm. decisions in my life to keep myself um, where I thought I needed to be. And after I realized, after that huge awakening that nothing I do is going to be good enough, I'm going to have to accept, um, I'm going to have to accept Jesus for who he is, not for, you know, he's not somebody who gives you a new start and then you run off like you don't need him. Uh, I, with, everything inside of me, uh, I know that I do not deserve another chance, um, but I got it anyway. And so it's the, it's the essence of, uh, um, he gave me my life back and it doesn't belong to me anymore. And he's the only one that holds it together. And I'm not afraid of messing up anymore. I mess up all the time. (laughs) So that fear is completely gone. So you've been on, You've been on both sides of the equation. The, um, I guess what I would call legalistic side of things, like you gave it to me, I'm going to manage it, um, you know, sin management, and, and now the, um, the grace acceptance side of things. I think as a church, I think the church is scared of grace because it's, mm. it's, it's weird. Um, you know, I think they're scared of moral lawlessness, you know, just run amok in their church. Um, and because I tend to be kind of practically minded, and you've been on both sides, how, what are some some ways that the church can handle grace better? How can the church better apply grace in how they love sinners? Um, I think that you have to come from, you have to question yourself, why do you have, and not you, just People in general, why do people in general have an issue with grace? It's because they're afraid it's going to set people free to sin, and, yeah, people are going to start running amok. But what they don't remember, this is, like, this is what we need to be talking about. What they don't know is that grace has a transformation power. It doesn't doesn't leave you the same. So if if you have to, um, you have to acknowledge that Jesus is real, it's not just an idea or a standard. Like, I think people forget that it changes a person. So they're not, and with that change, it's not that a person isn't going to sin or that they're going to try to get away with sin. They don't want to. But what Grace ends up doing is um, uh, it lets them get to the end of, it gets Let's them get to the end of the story. I mean, we're all on this journey, yeah, um, yeah. and it, wow. the journey is a gift. Yeah. Grace, Grace, right. lets them get to the end of the story. 
Yeah. That is, yeah. That is awesome. What? How did the church uh, deal with you when you failed? What hey, was um, your story? Uh, hey, can we get a little bit more explicit here for the sake of the listener? Um, you, you're the you're, you're the church girl, the church lady who had an affair, right? Is that where it went for you? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, I I had an affair. Let me just make it uglier. Like I'm just okay. gonna make it. I'm gonna tell you, it's uglier. I had an affair with my friend's husband, mm-hmm. and our marriages ended. I ended up getting pregnant, and we are now married. Okay. It is incredibly hard for people to hear. Okay, right. All right. So, so, so when all of this came out, what was the church's response? Um, well, their response to him was different than me. To him... We still love you. We want to, you know, we want to fix this. Let's not tell anybody about it so that you can get back to what you were doing and um, and go through counseling and we'll get you back on the right track and with very little, like, uh, rep- reputation damage. The re- church's response to me was we are going <laughs> to, and when I say the church, uh, it wasn't just one church. It was my community of my my Christian family. Mm-hmm. Um, they offered me money to disappear, and uh, wow. and wrote me wrote me a letter. Um, they asked me to tell a few lies, uh, and then wrote me a letter to let me know that I was not welcome anymore, mm. and that I could never be forgiven, and that if I asked for forgiveness, I might be able to fool people, but I won't fool God. And if I end up being accepted into a church, it's because the leadership is ignorant, and you know they might be yeah. excited because they have some young new person in their congregation, but they won't know what you know what I am, that sort of thing. Mm. It was incredibly uh, crushing. Yeah. Um, did you have anybody that was helping you walk towards grace? Was there any um, No, no, I didn't. But what ended up happening is, um, you know, after after all of this, I uh, people kept telling me I had to do certain things to, um, you know, to get for God to be able to take me back, and I I just felt frozen by the by the practical life situation, like what the damage I had done had kind of me, kind of frozen me to one spot as far as geographically and uh, health-wise. I was pregnant. Like, how does that, what does that do? And then um, what ended up happening is uh, I was kind of just trying to come to terms with the fact that God would never forgive me, that I really had ruined everything. And, uh, and, I mean, this might sound goofy, but, like, the negative thoughts, I mean, you can call them, like, demonic attacks, or you can just call them negative thoughts, whatever mm-hmm. whatever makes the most sense. But uh, just this screaming inside of me, telling me, you know, robbing me of sleep, telling me that I've ruined everything, and I just couldn't. Um, I, finally, I finally just uh, prayed one day, and I asked God, my exact prayer was, I know what your people say about me, and I know what my sin says about me, but I need to know what you say about me. Like, you just tell me, just because I had, I was ready at that point. It had been two mm-hmm. months since I, since I did that. And I um, had a, my devotion, I had this little devotion book, and uh, the scripture came from Isaiah 54, and in direct response uh, to that prayer was this, prayer, I mean, this uh, this message of salvation, like it started off with, I may have left you for a moment and out of anger, like that sort of thing, but I'm bringing you back. I'm going to rebuild you. You'll have nothing to fear. If anybody attacks you, it won't be for me. Um, mm. And th- just the whole rebuilding thing and the whole like rescuing thing, it just, um, I just started sobbing. Like, I don't know what to do now, but as long as you have not given up on me. I know I'm going to be okay. And yeah. here it is, you know, eight years later. And, uh, I, you know, the book is out. I'm able to help other people kind of walk through their own failure because there is a huge community of people out there who 
aren't welcome in the world yeah. that acknowledges Jesus, that they don't belong in the world that doesn't. And they need to hear that God will never give up on them. And they need to hear even deeper than that, like why he won't give up on them. And what does the Bible actually say about us and Jesus? And, and, and then get to the bottom of why, when people fail, do they feel like they can't come back? Mm. Well, this is Mondo. Um, there's some unbelievable crossover with your story and mine. Um, and Nate knows what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, and I, would you agree that um, the church in situations like yours or even my own, uh, a lot of times, you know, we look at grace um, and kind of this pretty thing. Um, and it, it can, and it does develop into that. However, I know that the Jesus that I serve and that I worship extends grace, but he meets me in the dirty place first. He meets me in the dark place first and takes me from there in grace to where I'm supposed to be with him. And I find that very few uh, individuals, even leadership in the church, have a hard time uh, have a hard time meeting you in the dark place. Uh, they they, they kind of have a megaphone and shoot over to you, say, hey, catch up to us, grace is over here. Uh, and no one really wants to go and grab you by the hand and meet you and walk you along the path. Would, would you agree that that's kind of some of the treatment that you received from, from the church in your area? Are you talking to me? Yeah. 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 Uh, definitely. Like, the, here's a set of criteria. If you meet this criteria, um, right. then, we'll, then, you know, God will love you. If not, you are on your own. Right. And my my biggest downfall in that period of time is I refused to lie. Mhm. And uh, yeah, you so yeah, you said that before that the, the church uh, it sounds as though uh you know, the scandal that broke through the Christian community as a result of what you did shook the church, scared the church. Um and there were powerful forces that really wanted to make it prettier. Uh, you know, wanted to calm the waves, and so they applied pressure for you. Uh, yeah, not to tell the truth. Uh, I uh, seems to me that uh, the reaction you got is markedly different than that the, uh, the woman caught in adultery received from Jesus when he came upon that scene. Um, it's a familiar scene to anybody who's been spent any significant time in church. Um, you know, Jesus comes upon a group uh, that has surrounded a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. They're fixing to stone her to death. Um, can you pick up the story from there? And uh, Serena, tell us what is it we're not seeing or what is it we're seeing from the wrong direction? In, in what Jesus says, uh, not just to the Pharisees, but to the woman herself. Um, I mean, in that story, like, picking it up from, from there, they, uh, Jesus, it's just incredibly simple. Who knows what he put in the sand, but I always like to, I like to think of it as just a line. Like, you're either over here with me and her, or you're over there. Mm. So I'm taking the side of the sinner. Which which side are you on? Mm. Because I think people get really mixed up. They look at the sin and equate it with the person instead mm-hmm. of looking at the sin. And uh, it, like, let's if you make if you uh, make your decisions based on sin, it is it is what it is. You made your decisions based on sin. Make your decisions based on grace on Jesus. Make a stand for, people think that they're making a stand for Jesus by standing against a human being. Jesus mm. never stood against a human being. The only, the only human beings he stood against were the ones who got it wrong, who yeah. were focused more on, you know, do this, don't do that, and less on, uh, <laughs> on the person. He's more about the person. I, I hope yeah. that answered your question. Yeah, yeah. Now, what, what did he mean, do you think, when he said to the woman, go and sin no more? 
Was that a conditional uh, release? What was that about? No, I do have an idea about that. Um, I think that uh, the it, it, scripture talks about like sin, and then it talks about the deadly sin. I think the deadly sin is unbelief. Um, mm-hmm. I think that she can go, and she can always be the adulteress, and always live her life in defeat because she did that, and not only did she do that, the entire town knows she did that. So, I, I, and I, I don't know how. I don't know if I'm stretching this, so you guys can help me out with this if you want, but uh, go and sin no more. Like, believe. You are free from this. You are not the adulteress anymore. Mm. 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 I love that. I absolutely love that. So you're... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. Well, I was just going to say... we got to find a way to get us all in one room. Go ahead, Aaron. As a pastor, your story is infuriating. And it makes me feel like I wish there was some way to apologize on behalf of the church for the graceless way you were dealt with because it was such evil. It was honestly in my heart more evil than the sin that brought it about. And when I think about when I think about your situation, the blame lies with the leadership. They're the ones supposed to they're supposed to be leading people into restorative grace for the people in their flock. And yet we have this uh you talk about misusing scripture that we can take 1 Corinthians where a man is put out of the church without looking at 2 Corinthians where we see that the whole process was to restore him, not to hurt him, not to exclude him. So we can look at Matthew 18 where Jesus, talking to his disciples, says, if someone sins against you, go tell him, just two of you. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along. And then if that doesn't work, then tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen... Let him beat you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And how often has Matthew 18 been used to say, if a person will not repent, which is totally different than your situation, this is like worst case scenario, then you should kick him out of the church. That that text in 1 Corinthians would be the justification to kick people out of the church. And that Jesus is talking to his disciples, one of whom is a tax collector, and we know exactly how he treats Gentiles and tax collectors. That yeah. Jesus is almost making a joke here. I can imagine poor Matthew turning very red in the face <laughs> when he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And he kind of shies away and everybody laughs and slaps him on the back. Because how does Jesus treat the Gentile and tax collector? With even more love. He pursues them. He has dinner with them. So he's saying, at the worst-case scenario, if somebody will not repent, you go love the hell out of them. And I mean that literally. So are these the kind of verses that were taken out of context where the love of Christ and the gospel hope of redemption was removed from you running back, boldly approaching the throne of grace in your time of need, for Pete's sake? Uh, they cited First Corinthians five directly, mm-hmm. and every single time I tried to, like, if you could just put like a visualization to the what was happening spiritually, trying to get to the cross, and they wouldn't let me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But the cross came to me, so <laughs> I think I think the the best way <laughs> to. I mean, obviously, it makes me emotional um, whenever I receive kindness uh, in light of of that. So trying to hold it together here. Yeah. But um, the best way to apologize for the damage that Christians can do is to make sure that your congregation knows what to do when somebody messes up. Mm-hmm. 
Make sure that yeah. they don't get dragged off into the dark and kicked around. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So, so so you're, I mean, clearly, uh, Aaron, you've got a follow-up question. Go ahead. So for the listeners right now who aren't in leadership, they have a responsibility here, don't they? Without I mean, question. If, if their leaders yeah. and their pastors are dealing with someone as you were dealt with, they are the ones that need to stand up and stand in the gap for you and all those like you and say, I'm sorry, no. Maybe we should take a flamethrower to your library, Pastor, because it's done you no good to <laughs> find the gospel. Uh, okay, yeah, I, the, the flamethrower imagery is maybe going a little bit too far, but I, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> it was analogous. It wasn't like no, a you... literal flamethrower, except perhaps uh, for me, but you get my point that, that yeah. so many times the people who aren't in leadership feel like they don't have the authority to do that, and yet that was your next bulwark of gospel defense yeah. if the pastors and leaders wouldn't do it then the people needed to do it and yeah. our listeners need to hear this and go wow i might have experienced what serena experienced and mondo has experienced or maybe i haven't and i need to be vigilant that the gospel is given to everybody not just sinners outside the church but sinners inside the church yeah 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 uh I'm so grateful, Serena, that you did not bow to the pressure to shut up, disappear, and go away. Um, an awful lot of folks in your position uh, have been intimidated uh, into silence, uh, into hiding. Uh, they've been driven, and, and just the despair of being abandoned, uh, rejected and abandoned, has driven them far from the faith and caused uh, grave damage. And I, I'm, I'm just so grateful that that same... Uh, toughness, uh, you know, e even that even that toughness that you have that you learned in one respect was a weakness. Uh, God used here that you hung in there long enough for grace. You know, it's interesting. There's a guy, a good friend of mine here in Tennessee, that actually started one of the Samson groups not too far from here. The first time I met him, he stuck up, he stuck his hand out. He said, "Hi, I'm an adulterer." Uh, and it kind of really just kind of took me sideways. He'd heard me speak, and he wasn't bragging about his adultery, but there was no shame in the voice. It was something that had happened years ago, uh, a situation much like yours, Serena. And he had been uh, – he knew my church because he'd been publicly excommunicated from it. He knew what it was like to become a pariah, but the gospel had persevered and uh, found a place in his heart. Here's a man who today, uh, you know, is a brother and, dare I say, almost a father to many, a leader among men, a one who rescues other hope hopeless people. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for my own moral collapse. The truth is I was, a, I was a desperate sinner long before anybody else knew. Um, that, yeah. I'm grateful – I don't think I discovered the gospel until that wall of denial that I built around myself and around my sin for so long finally broke down. And I had to face really the extent of my unfaithfulness to God and to everybody else until we see ourselves, I think, as the broken sinner, until we have that head-snapping, bone-crushing collision with our own depravity. I don't know that we can really grasp the gospel, appropriate it, understand it. Um, but once we have, I find that it's pretty easy for me to extend that same grace to somebody else, no matter what they've done. Jesus uh, you, loves has-beens. Uh, he, he's, I mean, I picture him at a, uh, at, Lazarus's house after his resurrection, and we've got Matthew the tax collector. He's not a tax collector anymore. We've got Simon the leper. That's where the house that they were eating at. Well, he's not a leper anymore. We've got Lazarus the dead guy. He's not dead anymore. Yeah. And none of that was reveling in it, but that's the story that made them gospelicious. Yeah. And so, <laughs> what, uh, what you know something. Thing. Go ahead. Go for it. Uh, something that um, 
I, I wanted to respond to something that was said just a couple of minutes ago, just about how um, that failure is actually the catapult to the change and the transformation and actually discovering the gospel and discovering God like as as who he was intended to be and not this idea that we have. I mean, it's that kind of thought process that leads me to like, so is it possible that God like, that God is not only like not surprised and not like freaked out when we fall, but he actually allows it so that we can find him? I mean, there are some big questions there. And if you look at, like, Romans 11.32, it says that God has consigned all men to disobedience for the purpose of having mercy on them. That completely Mm -hmm. takes the power out of failure. It completely takes the power away, and it puts it back in God's hands. Oh. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm getting chills in over here. Wow. We need another podcast. (laughs) 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 I'd be down for that. Yeah, yeah. I I know that uh, our listeners are going to want to get in touch with you. How are they going to? How can they do that, Serena? Uh, I have a Facebook page. It's Serena Woods author. Um, I'm on Twitter as Serena Woods. You can Google Serena Woods. You can email me at hello at gracesforsinners dot com. Um, I've got you know writings out there. I've got more books on the way. I am in the process of earning enough degrees to get me into a position where I can actually, like, step in and help people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the rest of my life, you're, this is the beginning of the rest of my life, and it's going to be this, just finding yeah. other Serenas out there, finding other, yeah. uh, you know, Jays and Nates and Mondos and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> Uh, it's, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And I, you know, until we uh, until we hit the wall, none of this none of this happens. So I don't know about you, but I'm I'm grateful to have hit the wall. Sounds to me like you're grateful to hit the wall. Uh, if we got listeners the out is, there, yeah, they need to read the book "Grace yeah, is yeah. for Sinners" by Serena Woods. Check it out and get gospelicious yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Serena, thank you. Serena. Serena, Serena. How do you pronounce it? You got it. Okay. Serena. Okay. Serena. <laughs> Serena, thank you so much uh, for joining us today for this conversation. I'm so grateful for your life. Uh, you're in Springfield, Missouri, are you not? Yeah, I'm stuck in Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Home of, uh, oh my, let me see, Assemblies of God, I think, is there, and Evangel College, if I'm not mistaken. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, thank you for joining us, and I and I do hope uh, that we get to connect sometime. Uh, if you find your way to Nashville, or next time I'm swinging through Springfield, we'll have to stay connected. Nate, All right. people send some mail. We want mail because we love mail, and your bag has been emptied again. So we need it to be filled. They need to send it to? Well, yes, they can contact us at samsonpodcast at gmail.com uh, or at piratemunkradio at gmail.com. Uh, all of our mail goes through Gmail. All of it is, of course, read by the NSA. So keep that in mind when you write. <laughs> And All if right. they're into brevity, they can do at Pirate Monk Radio on Twitter. Oh, that's true. Yes. S- send us a tweet. And uh, yeah. a question via tweet, a comment via tweet. That would be yeah. cool. All right. All right. Uh, I think uh, time has flown. We're, uh, we're just about there. Uh, we will be back with uh, – well, I don't think we need to come back with closing comments. I think we can close it right here. Until next week, uh, I'm Nate Larkin. Uh, he's Aaron. Uh, he, he's Newton. That guy over there is Mondo. And the guy who hasn't talked at all is Jay Spiegel, our executive producer. Until next week, goodbye from the Pirate Monk Podcast. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and that's the one step at a time. Hey, yo, hey, yo. Give yourself.